the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin, and hello, everyone. It is our five-year anniversary. That's a milestone. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to me, and it was, it's was it been creeping up. We've been trying to plan this and trying to figure out what movie to do because mm-hmm. we always try to dig back into the 80s golden era of comedies and stuff. For our anniversary shows, we usually try to dig up something that's our bread and butter of mm-hmm. retro movies to do for this podcast, and we chose National Lampoon's Vacation. Because why not? It's something I grew up with, you grew up with, and so many people feel that this movie is my family. Yeah. Um, there's not very many movies where you can say that. We got lucky because this just happened to be playing at the Alamo Draft House, so we were able to actually watch the movie that we were going to do an episode on, on the big screen with a crowded audience. And I've never seen this movie on the big screen, nor have I really watched it with an audience, which I feel like is kind of... It's meant to be seen with a lively bunch, and it really played like gangbusters. I mean, I'm certain everybody in there had probably seen it like 50 times like us, but it was still a fun thing to do. But still, with comedy, even a comedy can get stale when you've seen it a million times. Even the people that make these movies, they're in the editing room and see the same thing over and over, and it's not funny anymore. But when you... I don't know how many times I've seen Vacation, too many times to count. I'm still discovering things that I didn't notice beforehand. Yeah, there's so many jokes that are going on, even in the background. You mm-hmm. can just uh, focus on one. If you're not focusing on Chevy Chase, you can tell that other people are doing things too in the background that is quite humorous. So we'll get into a lot of those little um, moments. Uh, we're going to do, you had a great idea for how to structure this episode where we kind of talk about this movie because it was filmed in sequence they actually went on a road trip and filmed in all these different states until they got to um, California and so you suggested we kind of talk about the movie in that fashion so we're kind of like taking a road trip with the production of this movie and talking about it and how wild is that uh, is there another movie you're better with uh with factoids than i am but filming a movie that is on the road is one incredibly difficult that's something we're going to get into that um it's not like they had a safety person on this film and making a movie while on the road and all your actors are traveling in the cars your crew it's a caravan it's just nuts yeah there's very few movies i think that were filmed like in all the places that they were. I mean, mm-hmm. there have been a lot of road trip movies, um, but then you look them up and it turns out like, oh, they you know, shot entirely in one state that had different looking uh, geography so that it could double yeah. for different places. Yeah. Or you know, they shot the entire thing in Toronto, even though it was supposed to be the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. And so it was cool that they made that decision to you know film all the locations. And I think, too, it makes it from the background that we looked up in the research it seems like everybody felt like it was good and bad for the movie because they all kind of got exhausted but at the same time it does give I feel like an authenticity to the movie that a lot of road trip movies just don't have so what all are we going to be talking about Lindsay 
Well, obviously, talking about the production, where the story came from, how it changed, what type of comedy this is, kind of what it employed, where everyone uh, was coming from at this point in their careers. Um, I'm sure we'll probably hit on maybe a couple stunts, um, maybe some factoids you might not know about. Of course, we're going to hit on the cast. This is my favorite incarnation of the Griswold family. Uh, so this will be fun to talk about. And I don't know if anyone knows out there that's listening, but the ending to this movie was not the original ending. Yeah. So that'll be a good one. Um, also, of course, release reception and that banging theme song. I mean, does it ever get old? It doesn't. Not to me. No. No. After our National Lampoon's Vacation talk, we'll get into our picks of the week. I still don't know what your pick is. Uh, normally I ask you, um, I went with a Chevy Chase movie. Um, hopefully we didn't pick the same oh, movie God. because we didn't actually discuss oh, no. this. Uh-huh. Um, I chose Fletch. Okay, perfect. Which I think is probably outside of Clark Griswold. I think his character Fletch is probably his most well-known um, movie character. I went with a movie I grew up with that is... I mean, how many times I got to dip back into the, these are the movies that moms in the 80s loved. Um, and I went with a Chevy Chase, Goldie Hawn, and Charles Grodin classic to me called Seems Like Old Times. You, I've heard you talk about this movie before. I adore this movie. Yeah. It's There's so many dogs in it. Goldie Hawn is like functioning at that point of insanity a little bit. And Chevy Chase is a little understated for once. Well, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment. I never know what you're going to say for these Murray moments, but I have an inkling of what it might be because there's something, a relationship between Chevy Chase and Bill Murray that you've told me about many times. It's about time because, quite frankly, I'm a little tired of people getting the story wrong. There's there's a lot of info out there, but you have to pick from the sources. Know who's perpetuating the things that aren't true and who just wants drama. I'm glad you're you're going to be here to set the record straight. I sure am. For our five-year anniversary. Um, I do want to take this moment and say uh, thank you so much for all the listeners that we've had, um, new and old. We've had a lot of increase in our listenership in the last year. It always really, you know, is what keeps us going. It takes a lot of work a lot of research, a lot of time to put this podcast together. And it is something that we absolutely love to do. But um, without listeners, there wouldn't be a purpose for us to continue doing this. And it always uh, warms the heart when we see that we have a bunch of new downloads and new follows on social media, messages from people from all over the world uh, have... yeah you know, told us that they've tuned in and listened to the podcast. Uh, We showed up um, multiple times in the last year, uh, have ranked in the Ukraine is like top 100 media, our top 100 movie podcast. Thank you guys. It's awesome. And so, yeah, we can't thank you enough. uh, Each and every person that follows us and listens. Um, If you can, please do share. If you know of someone who is a podcast movie fan, Uh, please do share um, our podcast with them. We hope to continue bringing you new episodes of movies that you love or movies that you haven't heard of. And this is always fun for us because a lot of these movies we've seen a bunch of times and some of them we haven't seen that often or we haven't seen them in decades. And so it is always great to get to revisit some of these movies and sit down for multiple weeks and really, really find out how these movies were made and what went down 
And I know we don't put out a ton of episodes. We've gone to one did, episode a month. We Did we start out every two weeks? We started out every two weeks we and then we went yeah. to every three. three. And we were then, every three for a long time. Yeah. Long time. Um, but we've had a lot of different changes in our lives over the yeah. years. And we, we can't give this up entirely, but we, you know, nope. we also want to dedicate enough time to do a quality episode. We never really want to rush anything and put out something that we don't feel is up to our standards of what we want our listeners to hear. And so um, it does take a lot of time, but we love doing it. Um, So thank you again. I can't believe that we've been doing this for five years. Uh, We have over a hundred episodes. We've covered so many movies that we love. You're one of my best friends. It's always been just a pure pleasure to talk movies with you and continue to do this uh, project. You know, I hope that we get to do 100 more episodes together. There's so many other things that I thought about. I have this other, I've told you about this, that if we ever were like, let's put a pause (laughs) on the podcast, um, I would want to do a cover band with you of just songs from movies, theme songs from movies and, and focus on that. So that would be, I mean, my other creative idea yeah. to do with you. Be the uh, only uh, way that I would ever put a pause. And on you know, this. I'd, I'd be down for that. And if there's a producer out there that wants to like fund us and, and help us put this out, man, I could, I could find some time. We could make it work, you know? Yeah. But we love doing this. Justin, I love you. You are my best friend. And you are the best dog parent, and our dogs have become so close over these last five years. And um, for everyone out there, we start every episode when we sit down to record with a very long dog walk. Um, to, so, the, so they're not restless while we're trying to record, which doesn't always work. I wasn't for gonna, us. I wasn't gonna yeah, say that, yeah. but it's it's true. Yeah, we always <laughs> we always have to hit pause on recording for dogs drinking water and getting riled up and barking. But it is worth it because I love that we can do something that is creative, but we can involve our dogs and not have to go somewhere and leave them behind because we love our dogs and they're getting, they're only getting older and, you know, we want to spend every moment that we can with them. And when people ask us, why don't you put this on YouTube? Why don't you guys make a video of it? Well, number one, again, with the time and funding and two, do you really want to see six hours of us like having to press pause and wait for somebody to drink some water? No, no nobody don't. wants to see no. that. It'd take a lot of editing. So much. But we're going to continue doing this. Uh, five years. Wow. So long. Um, I'm really glad that we picked National Lampoon's Vacation. I love this movie. Lindsay, before we go into one of the first clips from this comedy, can you uh, give us your lowdown, your interpretation of what this movie's about. I also want to say here that for 100 plus episodes, you've written out your own summary of these movies. um, And I applaud you for that because you could have easily just copied and pasted something from IMDb or, you know, went to the internet, but instead you sit down and hammer this stuff out so that you can give uh, a real personal take on what the movie's about. I never, I purposefully never look at what the wikipedia or whatever the synopsis is but i'm sure there's some crossover with verbiage and whatnot well with vacation we have clark and ellen griswold along with their two kids rusty and audrey who set out on a cross-country pilgrimage to wally world a california amusement park billed as america's favorite family fun park clark's determined to give his family the most fun-filled family bonding experience 
But during this two-week road trip, the Griswolds make a pit stop to see some family, and here's where our trip begins to change course. Now with Crotchety Aunt Edna and her dog along for the ride in the old family truckster, the Griswolds battle one metaphorical roadblock after another. And so close to the finish line, let down by all the misfortunes along the way, the Griswolds finally reach their destination. But when our road warriors get to Wally World's gates and find it closed for repairs, Clark's sarcastically positive demeanor, which has carried them the entire 2,000 miles of this trip, quickly disappears, and his determination to get his family into the park will not be stopped. Thanks for that. Makes Very it sound nice. like not funny at all. It doesn't, it doesn't, <laughs> but it sounds like a really exciting movie. Well, we'll go to a clip. We'll come back. We're going to take you on a trip from the Midwest to Chicago. We'll cross the mighty Mississippi, and we'll make our way to Los Angeles, California, where uh, we'll get to see Wally World. It's going to be quite a trip. I can't wait to start talking about this. We'll be right back. Hey, hey, see that, kids? That's the St. Louis Arch, the gateway to the west. It's over 600 feet tall, and there's an elevator all the way to the top. That's 60 stories to you and me. Wow, Dad, can we go up on it? No. Dad, what river is this? Ah, that's the Mississippi, the mighty Mississippi. (laughs) The old miss. The old man. Deep river. My home is over, Jordan. Clark, I think this is the wrong exit. What's the difference as long as we get across the river? Clark, what are you doing? Just relax, Ellen. This is so dangerous. We have no business being in an area like this. Well, look at it this way, honey. This is a part of America we never get to see. (laughs) That's good. No, that's bad. I mean, uh, we can't close our eyes to the plight of the cities. Kids, you noticing all this plight? This will just make us appreciate what we have. (laughs) Roll them up. So if you've listened to one of our episodes before, you know we can tend to take some pretty deep dives into these movies. With this movie... Uh, It's National Lampoon's Vacation. Um, We're not going to get into National Lampoon's, um, the entity, because it would just be a two-part episode. So we're going to focus on... There's a whole documentary out there about that. (laughs) Yeah, there is. Um, And, you know, we have brought it up before in some of our previous episodes when we've talked about Harold Ramis, when we talked about Ivan Reitman. But I'll just briefly say that when I was younger, I didn't know what National Lampoon's was. Honestly, probably till like, I was a teenager I had always associated the name just by, oh, it's, it's just something that they needed to call these vacation movies because they all had the same name. Um, but National Lampoon's, if you didn't know, was a parody magazine. Uh, they went on to make National Lampoon's Animal House, which was wildly successful. But then they made two movies after National Lampoon's Animal House that were total bombs. And I recently went and tracked those down and watched them. One was called National Lampoon's Class Reunion that came out in 82, as well as Movie Madness, which came out the same year. I could not get down with these movies. Class Reunion had a couple moments because I think they were trying to do like a parody of like kind of horror slasher movies at the time. But it just I felt like it kind of missed the mark. And then uh, Movie Madness just seemed like I didn't really even know what the hell was going on. It was sort of all manic and all over the place. But because those two movies bombed, the Lampoons was not in the greatest shape. And so they wanted to revitalize 
the lampoons and put out a movie that had a little bit more story to it and structure in the same way that uh, Animal House did and something that was a little bit more relatable. And so Maddie Simmons, who you've seen his name in front of all the lampoons movies, was the founder of the magazine and also produced Animal House and has gone on to be the name in front of all these movies as a producer, creator, co-creator. I'll stop there. If you want to research further, Maddie Simmons and the Lampoons, there's a ton of great information out there, but uh, we're going to focus on vacation. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Lindsay, and tell us a little bit about how the vacation movie got its start. So the original story for Vacation was penned by a pretty well-known name that we know today, and that's John Hughes, who was a writer and editor at The Lampoon. The original short story focused on a cross-country trip um, that was looking back at something from his childhood, consisting of his own memories. And the original concept was more of a satire on the Uh, American family, something that people could identify with when reading, and some wild stories along the way. That trip went uh, from Detroit to the South and eventually to Disneyland. It was a pretty popular story in The Lampoon, and Simmons thought this would make a great film. So he took the original story as it was to the head of Paramount Pictures, and they thought that it was just kind of unfilmable. It was too episodic. It just wouldn't flow as a movie. And Maddie Simmons is thinking that's kind of the point of this is it is an episodic story and you're with the family on this adventure, but Paramount, it was a hard pass for them. So then Maddie Simmons uh, wouldn't let this die. Like we said before, he's desperate to keep the lampoon going. He went to Warner Brothers and they thought it was a great idea. I didn't ever actually hear what the amount was, but evidently this story was bought for an obscenely small amount of money. And considering what this movie has gone on to become, it's kind of nuts. At this point, the original writer, John Hughes, was asked to write a full script. And the original focus was going to focus on the children instead of Clark. What it was going to be like for the kids to be on this trip, how it was going to be to interact with the family, that sort of thing. So um, we have a script, and the next thing that we need to do is find a director. Enter Harold Ramis. Ramis had already had a longstanding relationship with the Lampoon, writing Animal House, Meatballs, Caddyshack, Stripes. He had only directed one film at this point, which was Caddyshack. And while that movie did well, stylistically, it wasn't exactly known for uh, being incredible in the directorial department. But he learned a lot on that movie, and he was a shoe-in for a guy who could um, direct a comedy film and solidly deliver a a good, cheap, funny joke. Maddie Simmons felt confident in having Harold Ramis on board as director, and fortunately, Ramis also felt comfortable working with um, a a lot of the lead comedy actors of the time, one of which um, was Chevy Chase, and they thought that if anybody to pull it off a movie like this, it would be a guy like that. And Chevy Chase at this time was pretty hot. Um, I mean, he was years off of Saturday Night Live. He had had you know, a string of movies that weren't like the greatest or anything, but they still performed really well at the box office because he still was kind of hot. I always feel like uh, it must be easier for comedy movies to come together in some ways because it's a world where like comedians know other comedians, whether it be writers, directors, actors, and they kind of know what will work for a certain material. It seemed like this was a movie that kind of really came together quickly and you kind of see where Chevy Chase and Harold Ramis and all these guys 
went to after this movie and all the success that they had and so many funny movies that they did. But Caddyshack was already like a pretty great setup for comedy and it was super successful. So it was like kind of taking that element and moving forward and Chevy Chase being able to command a leading man presence, but also do all the sort of like bumbling things that he was known for. But also kind of having that handsome man look that you could see being like the head of a family and like steering the ship on this like disastrous vacation. What was nice about Chevy Chase in this role is that it was totally different for what he had been doing at the time because he's Clark is kind of a nerd in a way. I mean, he's he's a dad, but he's kind of a cool dad. He's kind of an absent dad a little bit. But in a special way, Chevy Chase was able to explore another character within his brand of comedy. So th- I don't know. I hadn't really ever thought about it until really thinking about how this movie fit into his career at the time. So Warner Brothers, Maddie Simmons, and Harold Ramis were all about Chevy Chase. And fortunately, he liked the script. And in thinking about it, once Chevy was like, I'm, I'm on board to do this, Chevy and Harold thought, you know, not to like completely revamp the story or anything, but if we've got someone who, like Chevy Chase, who is a massive talent, who people love to see on film, maybe we could do a little bit of a rewrite and instead have the story focus on not the children, but the dad, kind of like the bumbling dad and definitely have all of the family involved just as much as main characters, but change the focus. And that is exactly what they did. I haven't really gotten, I mean, John Hughes wasn't known for talking too much smack, as as far as I know, at least about this. Um, I don't know what his feelings were on this. I heard Harold Ramis say he never expressed to him any dismay. And then I heard another source say that um, the rewrite on vacation was the entire reason he became a director was because he was kind of ticked off that um, the focus was changed. But John Hughes wouldn't be written out of the vacation story at all. He's going to come into play a little bit later in this saga. So Harold and Chevy have an office at Warner Brothers. They start kind of revamping who Clark is in the story. And the story takes shape in the movie pretty much as we see um, on film now. And before we get into the production of Vacation, just to kind of set the scene of like where a comedy was at in the early 80s, most of the comedies that came out were like not necessarily adult themed, but like had adults in them but they felt like a little bit older, like it was a carryover from the 70s. I feel like Vacation kind of kicked off a new kind of comedy where would pave the way for like the Fletch and Police Academy and things of that nature. This movie's rated R, but doesn't feel like a hard R, you know, and there's certainly elements of like gross out humor, situational um, comedy. Yeah, some nudity, but some like bungly slapstickness. But I think um, this movie was able to kind of like squeeze all those things together without having it just be like a a slapstick movie or a, you know, straight situational comedy. It was able to weave through all these different elements of comedy in a way that like they all kind of fit together. And a lot of that I attribute to Chevy Chase because he is really good at being a smart comedian where he can be sincere, but then also be doing something like outrageously ridiculous, either with his face or some sort of physical comedy simultaneously. It has always uh, been one thing about him that I like is that he can change his um, tone in the middle of a sentence and he can be cracking you up in the first part and then like completely like take you to another um, feeling 
by the end of that sentence. And we'll talk about the cast later, but I think just starting off, like when you watch this movie, it's a family that feels lived in because if you don't buy them as a family, even if there's jokes and stuff, the movie would get kind of stale. So, I mean, the fact that like, we really feel like this is a real family going on a road trip and there's a lot of like universal themes of, you know, anytime you've ever went on a road trip with your family or whoever, it's never like this like perfect moment. You know, there's all these little things that we can relate to in this movie. And I feel like they're done. Some are exaggerated, but for the most part, you know, these relatable gags are like done just enough. Like nothing feels like overused or repetitive. Like a lot of comedies will kind of like beat something into the ground and it doesn't even become funny anymore after they do it the third time. I think the only way that Vacation did that was in the sequels. But at that point, the jokes weren't overused. You just yeah. you just wanted to see them again. So again, I really liked your idea of starting this movie with the journey that they take. And so we'll follow along the rest of this episode in the route that they took in Vacation. And we'll talk about the different types of comedies. We'll talk about the actors and the production and situations as we go along. So the movie starts out in Chicago, which John Hughes, no surprise, has set almost all of his movies in Chicago, or there's like some sort of relation to Chicago. And the same thing with Harold Ramis, too, Yeah, as far as being from there, having an affinity for it. This movie, I think it does a good job of like setting up the suburban family in the suburbs of Chicago, and Clark Griswold is a successful person working in the uh, food industry um, or the food uh, additives, right? The food additive industry. Yeah. yeah. And uh, John Hughes like came from like the ad industry. So it seems I like that, you know, Clark's like a successful, you know, they're not rich, you know, but they, you know, he has a decent job. They have an Atari, they have all the stuff. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the beginning of the movie, they set it up that, you know, he wants to take them all on this road trip. His family would rather fly, but this is the that moment of like the the manhood of like, you know, I have my kids now and I need to take this journey with them. And it's more about him wanting to do it than his entire family. But, you know, he wants to take them somewhere special. And so we've got Wally World is a destination, which is sort of like a, a version of like a Disneyland, Disney World type amusement park i think they tried to get disneyland and they immediately rejected yeah. them and i kind of love that it's just like made up wally yeah. world yeah. you know version nowadays i think taking a, a like a road trip would be more appealing than flying because flying has become such a really terrible <laughs> way to travel with like cancellations and there's no room anymore they've cut everything you know yeah. that's enticing about it but when this movie came out like flying was like way more classy and that Mm -hmm. was the real luxurious way to travel and so it sets it up of like this is not the best way to for them to go 2,000 miles all the way to California from Chicago but we start in Chicago and immediately we set up the fact that you know his family doesn't necessarily want to do this but they want to start off by getting a new car and we immediately get our first great comedy scene with Eugene Levy and he's the scummy car salesman if you've ever went and tried to buy a car or a used car anything it's really not far off from the exaggerated car salesman that they're doing here and i love this exchange between them of like you know he gives him the wrong car and he knows it as soon as as soon as eugene levy sees him pull up on the lot like he knows that oh crap i don't have, we don't have that car at all 
Yeah, and I and I do like that uh, Chevy Chase has this confidence about him throughout this movie, even though he's kind of a fool, you know, and he's like, I'm not your everyday average fool. You know, it's like, <laughs> I want my old car back and, you know, they bring it. They've already crushed it immediately. And uh, yet he still goes to open the door. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's so ridiculous. But in the production backstories uh, research that we found, they said that they were really trying to find like the ugliest car that they could imagine. And when they created the family truckster they thought that they had went too far that this was such a hideous car that like people would see it on the screen and just like not buy into it um maybe i just have terrible taste in vehicles i would like love (laughs) a family truckster i didn't really think it was like that terrible looking of a car um obviously some of this stuff is dated he's like oh there's an airbag and it's just like a a garbage bag that like inflates um multiple times you know, it does a really good job of setting up that Clark Griswold is kind of an idiot, but at the same time, he has this like perseverance and this gullibility, but at the same time, kind of like trying to always be in control or like trying to be the leader of the pact and trying to be a good father to his kids. And making it work. Yeah. No matter what obstacle comes in his way. Yeah. And it's just sort of like dealing with things as they come, um, you know, not really getting stressed out, but like assessing the situation and thinking like, okay, how can I deal with this? But they get everybody in the car. They're off to the runnings immediately backing out of the garage. All their stuff gets taken off the top of the car. That's what I love about this movie. It gets in and gets out with the jokes. You know, you see their luggage get scraped off the top of the roof, but then immediately it's a hard cut to them. They're already on the road (laughs) and they're driving. And you know, this is always a scene for me, them crossing the Mississippi River and we see the arch and Clark's talking to the kids about the arch and they're already looking like a family to me. Like the kids are bickering, you know, they've got their headphones on and it's, I think, very much a very relatable scene of like any road trip that I've ever been on uh, with my fam- family growing up where it's just like the adults are in the front seat in their own little world and, you know, the kids are in the back and they got handhold video games or like their own music and they're they're in their own world and even though there's just like these two seats in front there's just like division and you've got this destination point that you have to get to but when the kids are saying oh the arch sounds cool can we stop there no yeah i think anyone who's listening to this episode from st louis you know it's no uh secret that you know he's like oh as long as we get off the river fine and they're actually crossing the river and then they get off on the exit they've already crossed over the river and they've left East St. Louis. They've already driven over it, but then it cuts to them in East St. Louis. Nowadays, you know, North St. Louis, parts of North St. Louis are probably more dangerous than East St. Louis, but, you know, they get off and they're in a iffy area. This is a scene that I think still plays kind of funny, even though it's a scene that is really playing on stereotypes. Harold Ramis said if they would have filmed it in modern times, like they would have, he would have like not done that scene I think it's like a case of wanting to, you're not thinking about it perpetuating stereotypes when you're writing this scene. You're thinking about how dumb these people are that they're getting the hubcap stolen off their car, you know, three inches down by people. It's really obvious that it's happening and they have no idea. Um, But I mean, it doesn't stop it from being problematic. Uh, But yeah, like you said, Harold Ramis recognize that after the fact and i think that it it was recognized at the time too and i think the biggest joke that comes out of them leaving that that i didn't notice i think probably the first few times i watched this when i was a kid and then later not really noticing till 
I was older that uh, someone had spray painted honky lips on the <laughs> like back of the family truckster, which I think is just hilarious. And it's pretty good. And I think it actually improved the look of of the truckster. And is it just as a continuity thing here? It's not on the rest of the car, or do we see that on the car? We do, right? We do see it later. Yeah, yeah. we do. It, it stays it, on there. A couple times you see it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's done, and I like it too because they don't do this close-up of it. It's that, And that's the subtleties in this movie. You know, it's like, I think like another movie probably would have done, they would like pan across it really big. Like that would have been the first cut is like the camera sweeping across honky lips. And instead mm-hmm. they're like, you know, maybe someone will see it. They'll think it's funny. Let's put some jokes in the background. Like let's not put everything up front. We'll keep some subtlety to it. This kind of humor that, you know, teeters on being offensive is, I mean, it's where the national lampoon came from. It's like that era of mad magazine. It's, it's where pushing the envelope, um, that, that type of humor originated. Harold Ramis said something like, you never know that you're you've gone over the top until you're already over it. And so it's kind of like pushing the envelope is what this movie was doing while trying to be a family comedy. It was also being way edgier than anything ever had been. Along with being edgier, this movie was pushing the envelope with how it was being filmed too. So this is a road trip. This is being filmed in a moving car. There were four or five um, of the family truckster mobiles that they had in tow. The one that is used for the interior shots and everything that's happening with the car had the wheels taken off and was put on a flatbed truck, obviously like strapped down, anchored down. But the cinematographer, Victor Kemper, would sometimes be on the hood of the car, would sometimes be on the side. It's not like you have a lot of um, area to move around, especially when you're on a flatbed truck and you were moving at, you know, high speed because they couldn't go, you know, you can't go 30 miles an hour and actually look like you're on a highway. From my understanding, they created something called the process body, which was this whole contraption, but they did get into a couple accidents. So um, the filming on outside of the car and on the hood of the car stopped after that. And all of the shots were kind of done inside from then on. But Harold Ramis did say it was super convenient when they were able to do it, that he could just sit on one side and give direction to people and just not be in the shot. And there is something to be said about actually filming the car and not having this, you know, projected screen of like you Mm -hmm. see in so many movies where you can tell that they're just the car stationary and they're doing like some sort of like a back rear projection screen behind them. That's like the car moving and or they're like, you know, someone's on the outside of the car, like kind of rocking it to make it look like it's moving. All the stuff of them driving looks like super legitimate. And I also love too that. They cut outside the car, like, you know, when they're crossing the Mississippi, that you see the family truckster and, like, you see people driving it. I mean, I don't know if all four of them were in the car when they did that shot, but you still get, in essence, I think, throughout the movie that, like, this feels, like, very realistic. Like, they were in the car the whole time when it's being shot. There wasn't a bunch of, like, you know, stand-ins or stunt drivers the entire movie. And this is, we didn't uh, say this at the beginning, but this was a 
a cross country caravan. It wasn't just, you know, a tiny group of, of people filming this. This was a hundred people, 24 cars and trailers and for seven or eight weeks, you know, making these random stops along the way that had been scouted out already. Um, the location scouts had already gone and like picked out these locations where they were going to stop. But still, this is a whole caravan that's going along with this. And it's just a really impressive feat I don't know for for me to think about doing that and it also thinking about being on the road and filming something as it's happening seems like a hell of a lot of pressure too Chevy Chase said he definitely made eye contact and waved at a lot of people that passed well we have our first stop that the Griswolds make in the movie and that's uh sort of this honky-tonk bar in Dodge City Kansas this scene is another one where, you know, it's a setup. The joke is that they're in this bar where it's kind of like a cosplay type situation. People are dressed old timey and the bartender's dressed old timey. And so Chevy Chase starts ribbing the bartender to get a drink. You don't really know what's like going on at first. And the bartender gets mad and he like pulls out a like double barrel shotgun, like sawed off <laughs> shotgun and like fires and Chevy Chase flies on the floor and then he gets up and he's like, oh, I thought the gun was real too. And he, he sort of plays it off. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> but then, you know, he orders his drink like really politely. And then we cut out. I love that this movie does that where it's like you set up a joke, we get a joke and then they end on a joke and then they cut out of the scene. Um, it's done really cleanly, really fast. And it keeps the movie moving. We get an idea of like where they're at and then they're off their truck into the next stop. And now we're getting into this moment in the movie that's pretty ridiculous. Kind of like this fantasy idea of there's this woman, it's Christy Brinkley, who is probably the biggest supermodel or like when the idea of supermodel started um, at the time. She's driving this Ferrari and catches <laughs> Clark's eye and they're having this exchange even though he's, you know, he's got his entire family with him. Yeah. And so it is a, there is this thing through, I think, all of the vacation films where you're like, Clark's kind of like a scumbag in a way. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's like flirting with women, even though he will bend over backwards to take his family on the big trip or do all these things to make sure that his family has a good time. He's also always like flirting with women or like fantasizing about other women, this dream girl driving in like the nicest car and and you brought this up earlier, this like... It's juxtaposed with yeah. the family truckster that looks like a giant piece of shit next yeah. to this like hot woman in a red yeah. Ferrari. It's like the, the, the <laughs> highest end vehicle that you could get at the time. Christy Brinkley had to learn how to drive that car. And I, I don't know too much about Ferraris, but I know a little bit more now that they're basically street legal racing cars and she had to learn how to because it speed like she speeds off she's driving it and for me um i don't know i don't think i would want to be speeding off and also that was her first movie too this whole experience for her was a thing by itself i think the shots in the ferrari uh were the easiest but we'll get to her a little bit later and then we get to i would say the most memorable moment in all of the vacation films and that's uh is that right the stop at cousin eddie's <laughs> You don't think so? No, I, it's pretty good. There's so much that happens here, too. There is. I mean, it's a really big scene. I mean, yeah. they're, they're there for a while, and then they bring a family member along with them. But the introduction to Cousin Eddie's family, I think, is this, you know, they live in like a rural area in Kansas, and they're kind of big rednecks. And they are, this movie is playing on some of these stereotypes, but I think that's done in a way of like, 
there is this like little bit of sincerity underneath of everything with the jokes, like the real tomato ketchup, Eddie, or, you know, Eddie's daughter's like stirring the Kool-Aid with her hand. And fun fact, that was an improv on uh, Jane Krakowski's part. Really, to me, like everything that happens at the Cousin Eddie barbecue is is golden. I like too that, we, you know, we set all this stuff up, but then it gets kind of serious for a moment where they're talking about how like, they don't have any money and yeah, he's like been out of work for seven years and Chevy Chase is like, oh, well, sure, you know, we, we could help you out with a little bit. And he like pulls like a couple hundred dollars out of his, out of his wallet. And then it's like some astronomical like amount. 50, that he's, about $50,000. Yeah, puts his wallet back into <laughs> his pants. But he, it's here that we, that the Griswolds are tasked with taking Aunt Edna to her son's house in Arizona and since it's on the way, they've been sort of like volunteered. And it's one of those things where it's like family and you can't turn it down. They don't want to do it. Um, they're already kind of like packed in their car with the whole family. And now they have to bring Aunt Edna along as well as her dog, who doesn't seem to like anybody except for Aunt Edna. <laughs> oh, man. It's also that scene I just happen to think has the most amount of kind of like the sex humor is really worked up in that too and yeah. things that are said. And it's mainly with the kids, um, which adds with the edginess of this type of comedy. And it is something too that like, you know, they throw in an incest joke, which is like pretty hardcore, but they do, a, it's a slight little thing where it catches you off guard around the 2008 to 2010 there were a lot of like the Todd Phillips movies and Judd Aptow. These sort of, we're going to push the envelope, but a lot of times they'd be overdoing it. It's just like, again, Vacation and John Hughes, like, I'm going to throw one little incest joke in, but then I'm going to do a couple of like lighter jokes. I'm not going to just keep stacking one on top of the other until, you know, you're like, God, this is like five jokes about kids or five jokes about the dead grandma like you know some of it comes off i think like it hasn't aged well but it's still i think kind of funny because they're only doing one joke they're not doing like 15 and it happens so quickly i mean yeah. specifically yes the line with cousin eddie's daughter you're not expecting it and it's said so quickly and with such just carelessness that you're like wait what did she say this also gives uh, the rest of the family some room to play, like Beverly D'Angelo, you know, Eddie's coming in for, always coming in for the kiss and she's kind of dodging him. <laughs> you know, it gives them a little bit of, uh, it, it lets the kids have their each individual moments in the movie. So we get to know them a little bit better. And it's it was a good way to break up the scene so that we're not on the road the whole time because we're at Cousin Eddie's for, you know, it's a good like 15 minutes of the movie. It's true, too, because Audrey has one of the most positive moments with Cousin Vicky, um, and it starts off kind of insulting, where Audrey's like, you know, it's not really cool to, like, be a hick, and then Cousin Vicky whips out all of this marijuana, and she's like, all of a sudden, cool, we're best buds now, and we don't really have that sense of the, the positive family interaction a lot in these movies, um, so it's kind of fun that that comes up for Audrey. And Eddie's wife, Catherine, who... Poor Catherine. <laughs> she, you know, they do. I, I love that she is this like sweet woman who like seems desperate, you know, when she, she always has a moment where she's talking to Ellen and it's like kind of confessing like, oh man, things are like way worse than they appear, even though they clearly look really bad. Yeah. It's not your typical comedy where they're going to show like rednecks and it's like the wife who's like screaming like, oh, you know, you know yeah. all that kind yeah. of stuff. They make her this like really sweet woman who's like supporting her husband and like 
being a good mother to her kids, even though it's just like there's so much stress and chaos around her. And we're not directly told it. It's just it's based on it's observational comedy with little sprinkles of things uh, peppered in there. So now that we have Aunt Edna and her dog Dinky in the car, um, it's time to head back out on the road. And we're headed to South Fork, Colorado and heading towards Camp Comfort that is headed by the always wonderful Brian Doyle Murray in that he's always got a great hat on in every in every movie and um, certainly doesn't disappoint in this one. I don't know why just him saying uh, we like- when, he's like, when he's eating that watermelon and he's like, oh, well, Chevy Chase is like, why do you need my address? And he's like, oh, we like to send out a, a mailer. We send out a mailer. Which is just... <laughs> It's pretty random, you know. It's it's a pretty basic thing to do, but just his delivery of that is is so real and funny. And I don't know what is up with the. Uh, I've never seen this before. These like it's like an army type tents that they have here for. So they're not cabins. It's for like really industrial strength, like yeah. tents. Thinking about what could have been in the scene, I guess Brian Doyle Murray. They were actually going to have him. Well, they filmed it of him in like an animal costume sneaking into these and like messing with people. And there's something that he alludes to when he's like giving his spiel about being there. But um, I guess for time, not because it was unworthy, but it was cut out. After we hit up Camp Comfort, it's time to hit the road again. And the Griswolds and Aunt Edna stop for some sandwiches, a little roadside snack. We've got another Christy Brinkley sighting. I think this is maybe the third or fourth one at this point. But this one gets a little bit more intense. Um, Clark kind of wanders off by himself. And using this, again, the flirtatious humor of, I don't know who dances with a sandwich as like a flirtation move. But um, Clark's working it. This is also where we get um, some of the gross out humor of this, of the dog Dinky peeing on the sandwiches. You know, everyone else is like, oh, my God, this is terrible. And they're like spitting out the sandwiches. And she like kind of thinks about it for a moment and is like, nah, and she just eats it anyway, which is a very like old grandma thing to do. And it was uh, another improvisation, too, by Imogene Coca. And uh, Dinky has uh, another important role here coming up. Uh, Not only did Dinky pee on the sandwiches, but um, this will be one of the most controversial uh, moments in the movie something something that for animal lovers it leaves us all really hurting and luckily um, it wasn't filmed the way it was originally written and I thank a baby Jesus for that one because I did not want to see um, a pelt of a dog hanging off the bumper of the car with a blood trail behind it yeah they originally were gonna have this like graphic kind of thing and this is uh I think even when I was a kid, I thought this was like pretty messed up. It is. And also worked as a really good PSA for people to not tie their dogs to their bumpers and forget about them. What's um, messed up is people, I don't know if someone made this up, but in some of like behind the scenes stuff, they said that people wrote in and said, I I did that. Pet deaths as humor has been in movies for a really long time. Um, and they do try to make Dinky the dog really unpleasant. <laughs> I think it would have went too far if they made him like the sweetest, cutest dog ever and then killed him. You're right. That would have Um, been worse. You know, but they do uh, this, the scene where Chevy Chase and the cop are talking, you know, about 
the dog and that's why he got pulled over is a funny scene. But uh, when you and I did see this in the movie theater right before the dog death scene happened, that's when you and I said, we're going to take a pee break. (laughs) It seems appropriate. I don't need to see that because while I don't want to see the graphicness of it, I also don't want to imagine it happening either. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. Uh, Let's go. Let's rewind back a little bit. We'll go uh, to that Cousin Eddie scene we were talking about earlier (laughs) because I just can't get enough of it. And then we'll continue our journey on this vacation. Let's not stay at Cousin Eddie's, though, please. No, no. Just be a... We're in and we're out. How do you like yours, Clark? Oh, medium rare, a little pink inside. No, you're fine. Light or dark? Oh, uh, either way, it doesn't matter. Vicky, can I help you with that Kool-Aid? Please? Mmm, I don't know why they call this stuff hamburger helper. It does just fine by itself, huh? Uh, I like it better than tuna helper myself. Don't you, Clark? You're the gourmet around here, Ed. <laughs> no meat in this? You get plenty of meat at home. Be polite. Have some ketchup. Real tomato ketchup, Eddie? Oh, nothing but the best. <laughs> so where are we now? Somewhere in Arizona? Somewhere. Halfway Some... halfway through the trip or a little think, over halfway? Yeah, more than halfway, um, but the Griswolds are lost. And we think Edna's asleep in the backseat. She's just passed out real hard. This is also where we have the moment where everything takes a um, metaphorical and literal nosedive. The car does a um, 173-foot jump, and it continues going, I think, for like 90 feet or something. It was a Guinness World Book of Records, um, how far that car jumped. Um, but our car is dead. The old family truckster is done, donezo. And uh, Clark decides to traipse across this desert, Arizona desert land, put his pants on his head, and um, try to save his family. And before that happens, there he has this brief moment with Rusty, oh, just to kind of talk about the the kids here, uh, Dana Barron, who plays Audrey, and Anthony Michael Hall, who plays Rusty. And every single one of these vacation movies, um, it's known that they swapped out the teenagers. And I do think that Rusty and Audrey work the best here in this movie. Um, yeah, I agree. Anthony Michael Hall is just has so much charisma. And we've seen him in 16 Candles and Breakfast Club, Weird Science later on, but this was his first big movie. And just this moment where he's, you know, the, him drinking the beer, <laughs> uh, like guzzling it down and having like a man-to-man heart talk with his dad. Um, I like that the movie takes a moment here and gives them a little bonding moment. And the relationship between the kids is very authentic to me. They're always fighting, you know, whether it be in the background. From what I read, they got on pretty quickly and were doing, you know, kind of bickering with each other. And the Harold Ramis knew that he had like the perfect kids for this movie. And they really do. They seem like brother and sister. We'll get into that more like toward the end of the movie when Clark starts to lose it. Now he's like kind of putting his family in jeopardy. The beginning of this movie starts off very positive. He's trying to have this perfect trip and like you said things are starting to go wrong and they're only getting worse and yeah the the car crashing is like the the beginning of the end for this trip but 
Clark doesn't want to give up. And that's where, you know, we have our leader of this movie. He's like marching on into the desert, which just looks like, you know, nothingness. He's going to die out there, which makes for a pretty funny scene when he goes to a repair shop and his family's already there waiting for him. He's like, where'd you guys show up? And he's, his voice is so scorched yeah. from no water that he can barely talk. What's great about that moment too is that as much stuff as they have been through, the much peril and irritation and pretty much everyone but Clark wants to go home. When they do rejoin with him, it is a really joyous moment and you believe it, how everybody embraces even though Clark's like near death when he finds them. And this is uh, something that John Hughes revisited in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I mean, beat for beat kind of borrows a lot of things from his own script and vacation, especially with, you know, they both have a station wagon in Planes, Trains, and the family trucks during vacation. And we see the this car slowly get demolished. And then, <laughs> yeah. you know, we finally, we cut to the scene in the family truckster and it's like kind of totally destroyed. Bar- you know, the the wheels are wobbly, <laughs> yeah. their tires are barely hanging on, uh, but the family's still going on with this car. And this isn't the only thing that is uh, alarming at this time. Um, so we've got Aunt Edna, who we think is, is sleeping in the back. And in the reality of the situation, um, it was sometime, I know, during this section of the movie when Imogene Coca, uh, they had been filming all morning and doing the scene and a Harold Ramis cut for everybody to take a break, take a little while, come back and we'll we'll wrap everything up. And when he said this, she said to him, what scene? Like she didn't know what scene they had just done, which was confusing to him. And and Ramus had been a little concerned about her health. She was older, but she had been nailing, uh, you know, all of her dialogue, all of her scenes, um, sometimes even worrying that she was too mean, you know, at times. But Imogene Coca had a stroke during filming and had no idea. It also left her mind completely wiped of the rest of the script. And I think it was a, I don't know if they took a break or a day or two, but um, she did stay up like that entire night and relearned the rest of the script and everything that she needed to do um, from then on. So I mean, it's just crazy. Wild. I- and that she continued going on with the movie. I mean, yeah. having a stroke in your, what, she was like late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. I mean, having a stroke anytime is like a big deal, but in the middle of a movie and, you know, you're just like, eh, I'm going to relearn the script because my mind's been erased. Wow. And during some of the moments, not even that were filmed, but when just on this caravan, when they're driving through the mountains, she had to sit in the floorboard of the car because she'd been in a car accident earlier in her life and actually was terrified of traveling in a car. So this was really cool for Imogene Coca, but man, what a trooper. I do think Aunt Edna's exit from this movie is one of the most shocking things. You're not, if you've never seen this movie, um, I don't think you're expecting Aunt Edna to die. Yeah, and the way they do it at first, it sets it up in kind of a comedic way. Uh, this is the only part of the movie that me that gets, it's a little bit almost too dark. Not so much that Aunt Edna dies, but in the way of how heartless Clark is. And he gets called out on it from his wife and kids, but they don't want to have a dead body in the car with him driving. And there seems to be a lot of options that would be available um, Clark's option is is like we need still need to get the Wally World so and the kids don't want her in the car so we're gonna strap her body in a bag 
to the top of the roof and drive with it, which in and of itself, you know, there's some humor in there, but then they get to her son's house in Arizona and he's not there. And so Clark's like, you know, we're we're not going to wait for him. We're just going to pin a note to her and leave her dead body on their front porch. That's messed up. I mean, it's It's, pretty bad. It's the one part that's messed up in the movie, but I think because Ellen gets so mad, they play the scene out to be like pretty real. The family's pretty shook up about the thing. And this is where they have the division of between Clark's in it in this on his own and his family that the, they've like severed the ties of like what they want to do with this trip. And Clark has his total meltdown, which he does in the other movies. But in this one, it's very, very dark comedy. I mean, his freak out is funny, but the lead up to it is not the most pleasant part of the movie. I don't think it ruins the movie in any way, but it is a, uh, you know, we've talked about tonality in movies all the time, especially with comedy. And, you know, you really can tow a line between making a joke and then taking something too far to where your audience isn't going to go there with you and you might lose some of your audience. And I think this is that moment where it was like such a fine line, you know, it's like the dog death was one thing, but this is like, I'm going to leave my dead <laughs> you know, family member and then leave her like on the front porch in in the rain for her son to find her with a note that says, Hey, we had to go to our, you know, Wally world. So we left her here when she died on the way. Isn't it hilarious that a movie where a dog dies and a dead grandmother gets strapped to the roof is still celebrated as a wonderful comedy, family comedy. Yeah. Well, at this point, um, we have come out of Arizona. We've already passed the Grand Canyon, which was so brief because Clark is determined to get to Wally World. We are now heading to L.A. in the home stretch to get to Wally World. We do make a, a side stop at a motel where uh, Clark actually gets to hang out with the girl and the Ferrari, Christy Brinkley. This is almost <laughs> where Clark double downs on being the scumbag because it's like he's already freaked out on his family and now he's like flirting with this woman and giving this like ridiculous thing about how he's like owns these hotels and he's like got a fake family and ends up waking up all the guests from the hotel by jumping in a cold swimming pool with Christy Brinkley and the amount of shit that Ellen puts up with it is it's like I can't I and I'll I'll give I'll give this movie credit because they turn this whole thing around pretty quickly, mm-hmm. like where he makes it up to Ellen and then they jump in a pool together. Um, man, I've seen other comedies where a, a little bump in the family road gets stretched out for like twenty minutes, and then they're mad and they're trying to make up, and there's all this stuff, and they get sentimental. And this movie really irons us out like really quickly so that we can get back in the car and and make our way to Wally World. It's why it's a farcical comedy, like why it's not something that's really like based in reality, because we're not lingering on those moments. And Clark can make up to Ellen in this world so quickly and it not be a big deal. And it does seem that Clark and Ellen really do have a good marriage if we're going to go like story wise. Um, But the idea of Clark being kind of a cowardly scumbag uh, is something that is that goes all throughout, honestly, until we get to Vegas vacation and then the the tables have turned. I do like that uh, also where they reuse the joke of 
Eddie gives him these like ridiculous shoes, like dress <laughs> shoes, and then yeah. uh, he busts like Chevy Chase busts them out. And when he's gonna go down, he's like mad at his wife. He's like, "I'm gonna go," and she's like, "Where are you going?" He's like, "Why do you care?" You know, and leaves. But he's got he's holding the shoes in his hand. And they cut to his feet at the bar, and he's wearing the the ridiculous looking dress shoes. Well, I think it's probably time that we get to Wally World. Yeah. The big finale, a lot of the movie, there's like 15 minutes where it's nighttime. It was raining, then it's nighttime. And when it cuts to them, like pulling up the Wally world, you know, it's like this bright, perfect, sunshiny day. They legitimately all seem very excited. And they're doing at the time, there was a movie called Chariots of Fire that I think it won Best Picture. Um, It was a very popular film. And it's a movie about long distance running, I think. And I've never seen it, but I've only known it because of the chariots of fire theme song they reuse the theme song and the first time i saw this you know when they pull up there's like nobody in the parking lot it doesn't give the joke away because you're like oh they're they're the first ones here but then they get there they find out that uh wally world's closed for some construction and clark loses it again you know and he's like drives to like a sporting supply store and picks up a gun that we find out later is like a bb gun but he threatens uh the security guard to let him on all the rides, him and his family, because they deserve it. They drove all this way. The security guard played by the ever lovable John Candy in uh, one of his early roles uh, in a fairly big movie that everybody knows. Not so fast there, Justin. We're going to get back to John Candy, but this was not the original ending of the movie. It was something that was along the same lines, but a little bit darker. Um, The Griswolds do show up to Wally World, find that it's closed. But along with a pellet gun, Clark also picks up a movie star map that has where all celebrities live in the L.A. area. At this point, Clark has lost his mind, and he goes to Roy Wally's house to confront him, finds him with um, some executives, and in order to make sure his family gets their money's worth, he makes at gunpoint makes Roy Wally and these executives dance and do, I guess, some humiliating type of dance for them. How is this going to get resolved, you ask? Well, Christy Brinkley shows up and is apparently Roy Wally's daughter and convinces him to, you know, let the Griswolds go. They're just freaking out. Just let him go. I'm really happy this ending didn't happen, but it was kind of moving in the same vein of all of the actors being tired and just ready for the shoot to be over. It was the middle of summer. It was blazing hot. This is a Six Flags park that we're in. I think Anthony Michael Hall got sick one time from heat stroke. And when you see Clark run up and find that... Marty Moose, who is the voice of Harold Ramis, and he gets up there and Marty Moose says, we're closed, and he punches the moose. That wasn't in the script either. Chevy Chase was just that ticked off and hot and just done. I think there was also an instance in which there was a little reshoot of some luggage falling off the car, and Chevy got super angry for whatever reason and was looking to chuck the suitcase at someone, and he chucked it at Harold Ramis, who was ready for it, and... um. It was pretty much kind of like towards the end of the shoot that they were like, this needs to be done. So we have the uh, the movie wrapped up with that original ending. Justin, do you have any thoughts on that ending? I would not have liked that ending, and apparently audiences did not like it. They did a test screening, and 
everybody was laughing hysterically. They loved the whole movie till they got to that ending and test audiences absolutely hated it. So right away, they, the producers and Harold Ramis were like, we have to reshoot the ending. Not totally unusual. You know, this seems like it happens in many movies where they test it and they got everything right, but it's just not an ending that uh, you know, people are satisfied with. I think they felt like they had a pretty great movie on their hands. They just needed to tweak some things. Rewrote this ending with the great inclusion of coming back to John Candy, having him in the movie, because it gives uh, the movie like one last little good bit, nice extra bringing in a new character that is totally lovable. They had to get some extra money. They had to get John Hughes back on to write this ending. Um, but they needed... $500,000 to go back into Six Flags and shoot this. And I think at this point, Warner Brothers was just going to cough up whatever because you have a completed movie, but this ending sucks. And then Harold Ramis knew the the type of security guard, the person that he wanted was specifically John Candy. And they go back to Second City TV. And in 1982, when this was completed, John Candy's agent, man, got him a million dollars. For this this little finale, see, That's I mean, nuts. and it's amazing too. But like John Candy was hot then at the time, but this was what a year after Stripes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty nuts that he got that much. And I think um, the studio knowing that we're going to end this movie on not only a bang plot wise, um, we're gonna have it with Chevy Chase and John Candy coughing up a million dollars for John Candy. That's a a slow clap moment. Yeah. And this new ending was totally successful. Audiences uh, really came around and enjoyed the fact that we have this comedic bit with John Candy and they're making him ride all the rides with them. And then, of course, they do have Roy Wally show up um, with all the security guards and cops and stuff. But it turns out, you know, Chevy Chase is able to sweet talk him and say, you know, have you had a family? Have you ever done a road trip? And they kind of bond. And Roy Wally's like, ah, let's, you know, forget it. We're going to drop the charges. The family is like totally relieved. You know, you feel good. It's a good, it's a feel good ending. You know, even though a lot of madness happened, a lot of chaos, I think it's an ending that you can truly enjoy. We get the great Lindsey Buckingham Holiday Road song kicking up again. And Lindsey Buckingham playing every single instrument on this. He also uh, was commissioned to to do the the closeout song, Dancing Across the USA, which isn't as great as Holiday Road, but it's still pretty catchy. Yeah. And Vacation was very successful at the box office, uh, made about $60 million. It opened with $8 million. That doesn't sound like a lot, but for 1983, for a comedy, pretty dang good. They immediately were like, we got to make another one of these movies. Um, which led to European Vacation, which John Hughes is credited as the screenplay writer for that. European Vacation, I think, has a lot of great moments, but it did lack some of the John Hughes vibe. And I always wondered about that movie. And then I found out uh, recently when we started researching this that they put John Hughes's name on it because he had an affiliation with it, but he didn't actually do much with the script. And it was really kind of false advertising. But you can really totally tell that someone else wrote a lot of that material, especially like all the fantasy sequences that take place. And it's more slapstick than like a John Hughes type movie. 
That's exactly what I would say. It is way more slapstick. I think European vacation historically probably is the one I've seen the least, but what I remember from childhood as being my favorite. And I think the reason that that was was because it was the most slapstick. Um, It's also the only one that made me feel like I actually was on vacation because it felt so... You know, like you were actually in another country and the the type of humor, you know, that was being used here was, uh, again, very generalizing, very stereotyping. But I don't think that this movie is is lacking in humor at all. I think it's still staying with the overall feel and vibe of the Griswolds. They don't feel different yet to me. Rusty and Audrey, not necessarily my favorites. I could do without the like anorexia humor which is just so pervasive with Audrey um there's some things that don't work with it but I do I do like that I feel like I'm on vacation with them this one feels the least family friendly to me of yeah, all the, of the sex vacation. tape thing like there's it, a lot going on that's like a little more sleazy than sleazy it the, is a little the, the vacation movies then we move on 1989 to get john hughes back on board john hughes notable for writing a christmas classic with home alone um also penned another christmas classic and that's christmas vacation my favorite of all of the vacation movies not just because it's like a tradition I mean, it is a tradition for me. I see it. I watch it every um, Christmas, but I, I just feel like beat for beat, the jokes are there. It feels more of like a they they got the family unit locked in for that movie. It feels really, really authentic, like a family friendly movie, but also has some adult humor in it. And I feel like it's Chevy Chase's best performance as Clark Griswold when there's moments where he has to be heartfelt or caring or dramatic it doesn't feel like he didn't take those moments seriously like he really goes for it and i mean feels like a genuine family man father husband i uh you know i can't get enough of that one i that's and that, and i also love them that the fact that they brought back cousin eddie and may, it made sense it was a reason to bring all these people together it's definitely more of an ensemble comedy yes. than any of the vacation movies um, but in a really great way, everybody's like works really well together and there's so much cross talking and humor that happens. It's a movie that really moves. It keeps you on your toes and there's like joke after joke after joke. Um, there's really not a lot of wasted moments or scenes that play out and kind of fizzle. And it's not knee slapper moments either. It's, no. it's very, it's weaved in there in the same way that um, the previous films are. Um, especially the first one. I think this one is much more in the style of the original versus European, obviously, with, with John Hughes' inclusion. But it's almost like John Hughes matured a little bit, and then we got Christmas Vacation. It's way more heartfelt. And, we hey, we even have Brian Doyle Murray coming back. Yeah, and we get a killer, another killer uh, title song with Christmas Vacation, the Mavis Staples, like opening and closing the movie. Would have been weird to bring back Holiday Road for this one. Mm. So <laughs> I love that uh, they, you know, were like, hey, let's get a really great soul singer and do this, like, awesome Christmas song. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's a reason why for 30 years that movie's, like, been you know, a holiday classic for so many people. One thing that is nice within this series is it brings back um, kind of recurring jokes. We're always going to have Clark getting mad and having a moment where he freaks out on his family. There's always going to be 
property destruction or property loss in in some sort of way. Um, he's always going to be looking or lusting after a girl. At some point, just once in the movie, Clark is going to go, Rusty, and Rusty's going to be standing right next to him. It's these wonderful little jokes that weren't overused. So when we see it again in another film, it's like, it's kind of fresh. But with Christmas Vacation, um, I don't know if I would say it's my favorite up against the first one, but it's it's certainly right there because there's a lot more heart in this one. I and yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, Except there's the cat death. There's the cat moment, death is kind of kind of crappy. <laughs> it is, but there's moment to me. There's moments in the original Vacation. I love that movie up and down. Yeah. But there's moments where it doesn't necessarily lag, but some things get darker. And again, like Clark is more of a scumbag in that one. Whereas like Christmas Vacation feels like I really just feel like there's I'm always enjoying it. There's like it's pleasant throughout the whole movie. Then we fast forward about 10 years and they release Vegas Vacation, which when that movie came out, I was so freaking excited um, because I had had, you know, so many years of like watching all three of the vacation movies over and over again. And man, I just cannot really tell you my disappointment. (laughs) Um, And here's the thing. I've rewatched Vegas Vacation for this episode and there's some there's some good moments in it. You know what I mean? It's not it's not a wasted movie, but it is the it is the vacation movie that feels the most forced. Some of the jokes feel like recycled in a way of like we're not even trying to make them fresh anymore. Um Cousin Eddie doesn't really offer anything new. They actually kind of make him like the most obnoxious in this movie like it don't and really this movie feels the most obnoxious like they have Chevy Chase doing like 10 minute long pratfall scenes, you know, the whole like Hoover Dam stuff. It just everything felt feels like a little bit dragged out in that movie. Rusty and Audrey, they just have them kind of doing their own thing too. And a lot, a lot, you know, the family feels really separated. It doesn't feel like a family unit type movie. And some ideas that they have, like with like Wayne Newton playing himself, but has this thing with Ellen that really goes on for too long. There just never really seems to be a moment where someone said let's do these quick cuts like in the original vacation where it's like let's have something funny and like boom let's cut to another scene and that doesn't seem to happen things linger too long in this movie it's also we don't have john hughes um and it really really shows like i think they should have paid john hughes whatever he (laughs) wanted to write a better script for vegas vacation I think the lack of heart and the family unit not being a unit is why this movie doesn't work for me. Now, there are moments of humor and I that I really enjoy. I've seen it many times, like willingly rewatched it. It's not one that I hate. It's not the best. And it's because I've spent all of this time with the Griswolds going through so much. And now I'm here with them and they're just completely separated. Now, does that happen to families actually when they go to Vegas? Yes, you do get separated and you're, and you're not with your family. Um, so one could say that, you know, maybe it's because of that. But at the same time, I'm not watching the Griswolds to watch them be separated. I'm watch, watching them to um, be goofballs together. Yeah. And that was the last uh, vacation movie that they did where Chevy Chase is the lead. There was a vacation. I wouldn't call it a remake because it's sort of a continuation of the story. Rusty's now grown up and he's taking his own family 
on a vacation. I originally thought it was a remake and I was really mad about it. But then I heard this. I'm like, it has potential. Yeah. And it's one that I didn't watch when it came out. So I tracked it down, watched it for this episode that we're doing. Um, You know, I'm not the biggest Ed Helms fan. It's Ed Helms playing Rusty. It's got Christine Applegate, whom I love, playing his wife. You know, Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo have a very brief underutilized scene in the movie but for the most part i found this movie excruciating grating gross mean unfunny mean-spirited i really hated this movie i was kind of shocked that like (laughs) that uh it it made so much money i mean the movie made more money than all of the vacation movies because it was banking on the success of those yeah and and i think too that there was a uh there was this moment you know when that came out where it was like we're gonna get gross as we can with humor and i mean there's like 10 pedophile jokes in this movie it's just it's non-stop the only time that they let the movie breathe is at the end and it's like so forced and they really make the lead character and i'll stop because i don't want to just get all negative here but like the lead character rusty they make him out to be such a loser in the beginning and that his family hates him you're not even really i don't know it's like it already starts off bad where you're just like uh why does anyone want to hang out with this guy because they make him so unlikable whereas like you know chevy chase it's like even though he can be a buffoon he's charming and he's you know can work a room and you know people seem to actually love him even though they know he can be an idiot and you just didn't get that with the rusty at Holmes character in the vacation extension type movie. I won't say anything else about it. Uh, if you have anything to add, but I really, and I, and I warned you like you hadn't seen it yet either. And I was like, take the DVD, <laughs> Keep you know, it. good luck. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want it back in my house. And I think historically with you and I over these last five years, I think I'm always the one that gives the piece of crap movie a chance. Way more than you do. I agree. Uh, I agree. (laughs) I see that thing all the way through to just look for anything that is any scrap that will work. I I laughed in two parts, two moments. But again, it didn't warrant like the Chris. What's his face is dick jokes. That was in the face. That's about the only thing that I did. But it was because of that actor. It wasn't really because of anything else. I wanted to like this so badly because I love Christina Applegate, but I think that even her character just wasn't used at all. Yeah. Um, it just, it didn't have the same vibe. It was definitely a movie that was focusing on Ed Helms as Rusty. But even with that, all of the other Rusties, I mean, even Ethan Embry in Vegas Vacation, it worked. Like, as Rusty, I believed him as this, you know, of yeah. course, Rusty changes every every movie, but Ed Helms just didn't, um, there just was no Griswold vibe there at when, all. When, to me, like, to sum it up here is that in all the vacation movies, the Chevy Chase character, Clark Griswold, he never does anything, at least to me, that I feel is, like, unbelievable to his character. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever he gets himself in, whatever decisions that he makes... I feel like it works in a legitimate way to his character. It's something that his character would do or would get himself into. He would make these decisions based on what that character is. Every character in a movie makes a decision, and sometimes you're like, well, why would they do that? Yeah. That doesn't. But everything fits, and in Vacation, they set this rusty character up to be such a loser, and then scene after scene, he makes a decision or does something that seems wildly out of what character they've built him up to be in the beginning. And 
that's that's to me where where a movie like Chevy Chase works, you know, because he can do all these ridiculous things, but we believe it, and it's I can buy into the story, and I'll let certain things slide and plausibility, you know, let loose because at least you know in this universe of the vacation movies, it's it makes sense that he would do what he does, and some people like that movie. It made a ton of money, and you know I looked it up on IMDb and. People had some good things to say about it, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just uh, getting old and I don't think gross out humor is funny. I don't know. I think that it fit more in that era of gross out humor movies that were coming out than it does in the National Lampoon's canon of films. I don't even think that the gross out humor fit National Lampoon, honestly, yeah. um, at least not in the in the classic sense. Well, this seems like a good place to stop. We'll talk about our picks of the week, and we'll come back for a final thought on vacation. Um, but uh, that was a fun ride. I'm, I'm, that was a good journey you know, we it had. It was good. It was an experiment to do it this way. I hope uh, you listeners enjoyed it. Lindsay, let's get down with our Chevy Chase double feature. Um, what can you tell me about Seems Like Old Times? One of my favorite types of comedies are those written like a play, yet still transfer well to film. The incredibly well-known playwright Neil Simon is a master at this, known for quick-witted humor, lovable, or at least super-layered characters, and an unbelievable plot that makes for the most charming of stories. Seems Like Old Times stars Goldie Hawn, Chevy Chase, and Charles Grodin, all actors during a great time in their careers, and also all actors who have impeccable comic timing. And this film relies heavily on timing and delivery in every single line of dialogue. It's so quick, and as a matter of fact, you have to keep up with the rapid-fire humor. Something that one could thrive on and be engrossed by, or make you have to rewind a couple times until you've locked in on the flow of the film. Chevy Chase plays Nick, a divorced writer who's forced at gunpoint to rob a bank, the plan being he takes the fall for the robbery, if caught. After the deed is done, the real culprits throw him out of a getaway car and injure his leg. Desperate, dirty, hungry, and wanted for armed robbery, Nick seeks secret refuge at the house of his now-remarried ex-wife, Glenda, played by Goldie Hawn. Glenda, a bleeding-heart liberal defense attorney who's personally trying to rehabilitate the entire world, defends petty criminals, gets their charges reduced, and then finds a way to get them employed, which usually means they come to work for her, being her driver, her gardeners, her cook, just doing odd jobs, anything that she could think to get them on the right track. She'll also take in any stray animal who crosses her path, which is a reoccurring source of comedy throughout the film, so you kind of get the idea of what Glenda is and why Nick goes to her. Charles Grodin plays Glenda's husband, Ira. He's a caring, fair, and decent district attorney running for attorney general for the state. He and Glenda have a chaotic, loving relationship, and everything's coming up roses for them and his giant career move. The only thing that could get in his way, of course, is his wife's ex-husband secretly coming to them and hiding in the couple's guest house during the exact time the state's governor is coming over to their house for dinner. Aiding a wanted bank robber isn't exactly the most desirable trait for a potential attorney general to possess. This is a farcical, silly plot with these incredibly engaging lead actors, all of whom play so well off of each other like some sped up dance of comedic precision. There aren't any flashbacks to a previously passionate marriage between Nick and Glenda, which I'm kind of thankful for, but there is a certain love that still exists between them. It also helps that Glenda is a bleeding heart and Nick fits her unconscious criteria for wanting to help someone in dire need. Han isn't a stranger to playing a compassionate character, but probably best known for making exaggerated animated comedy into something that works and you can actually see happening. 
She anchors the film with all the chaos that's happening around her, from being comfortable in the mayhem to being thrown off her game once Nick re-enters her life, forcing her to aid him in bed and feed until he turns himself in. And with the impending visit from the state's governor having a direct bearing on her husband's career move, Han takes Glenda from a relatively collected human to a total mess and eventually returning to the comfortability of her normal chaos. This was the second film that Han and Chase did together, the first being 1978's romantic comedy thriller Foul Play. But Seems Like Old Times is a strong throwback to a 1940s screwball comedy that really suits the pair, and I'm, I'm kind of a fan of that 90s screwball style anyway. Chase is characteristically understated in his delivery. This is also during a time in his career when people wanted to see his classic pratfalls and physical comedy. Chase gets beaten up a lot throughout the entire thing. He's miserable, and obviously a man in hiding who has a limp is destined for comedic abuse. Grodin's playing the straight guy in this movie, but has scene after scene of perfectly teed-up comedy that makes him just as equal to Han or Chase. There's so many scenes also of the supporting characters who steal uh, moments or have genius additions like Aurora, Glenda and Iris Fiery, housekeeper and chef. But the real unsung comic hero in Seems Like Old Times is pretty much every scene with Chester, the former client of Glenda who she's now employed as her chauffeur and butler. Chester's scenes never fail as the middleman who accidentally finds out about Nick's existence but knows better than to open up his mouth. From the improbable to the anxiety-riddled scenes, intelligent quips that lead you to laughing into the next comic setup, Neil Simon really delivered a beautiful piece of comedy with this story. This was the only film directed by Jay Sandrich, but he was a very accomplished director of classic comedy shows like Mary Tyler Moore, Cosby Show, Odd Couple, Golden Girls, WKRP. Like The man knew how to frame, stage, and properly shoot to maximize for laughs. And as if this film couldn't get any wilder, the finale is one of the most ridiculous courtroom scenes ever committed to film. But if you've held on to this nonstop comedy for this long, nothing is going to be too unbelievable by the credits. And like many films that are over 40 years old, there's a lot of humor that plays on ethnicity and race. There's nothing like too overly offensive, um, but... Non-aggressive stereotypes are frequently used, and looking back on movies like this, it looks to me more like the obliviousness of a white male writer versus intentionally trying to offend. I'm not trying to excuse it away, but it certainly doesn't feel mean-spirited. Another aspect which dates this film is the fantastically 70s disco funk theme music from composer Marvin Hamlish. The man was a musical genius, and although it feels very of the time, it was perfect for this movie's theme. For an hour and 40 minute movie, it zips along with such speed that challenges more contemporary films with its wit and charm, suspense, and tree-branching stories of complete absurdity. One word of caution, um, if you have a dog who watches television, and I have one like that, you'll want to wait until your little one is conked out because there are so many scenes of dog action. Um, no violence, no animal violence, thankfully, but all of the chaos that involves dogs, it's, uh, it's pretty intense and it's pretty loud. I really want to watch uh, Seems Like Old Times. I haven't seen that um, movie, and I haven't seen Foul Play in forever, but um, after watching my pick of the week, I kind of wanted to see some of these earlier Chevy Chase movies where he's a little less one-note, you know, and there's yeah. like a little more like dimension to his character. Yeah. I can't wait to hear about your revisit to Fletch. It's been it's only been probably a handful of years since I've seen Fletch. I haven't seen Fletch since I was a kid. Okay. So I was treading lightly because I <laughs> wanted to do a Chevy Chase movie. And looking through, I kind of figured we probably wouldn't do Fletch as a feature for the podcast. 
but watching it, it is this era of Chevy Chase where he's like going all in on this particular type of character. This is like 1985 where he's really honed in on the bungling knucklehead, but who also has like a quick wit and always has like a remark for everything. I think for the most part, it does work in this movie. Um, Fletch is a, it's like a neo-noir comedy. Chevy Chase plays Erwin Fletch, who's a investigative reporter for the LA Times. And I don't really understand the world of investigative journalism, like how much time you're allowed to do like a, a story. In this movie, he's been working undercover for like three weeks, like hanging out on the beach, acting like a junkie so that he can break this story on who's bringing drugs in. Um, and selling them on the beach. And so they set that up in the beginning in a, in a very traditional noir uh, trope. They, they make you think this movie's about one thing and then it diverts to someone wanting someone to do something nefarious. And so Tim Matheson singles out Chevy Chase's character because he sees him on the beach and he thinks he's a junkie and he asks him to murder him so that his family can get the... Uh, insurance and he's like I have cancer and I want you to come in on this date and murder me and then I'll have a plane ticket for you to travel to Rio de Janeiro or wherever and you know I've got everything figured out and I'll have like $50,000 for you. The one thing watching this and I, again I haven't seen this since I was a kid, it is strange that uh Fletch is just like it, you know he's got this deadline his boss is breathing down his neck at the paper but yet he decides to take extra time to start investigating this guy who wants to hire Chevy Chase to murder him. And a lot of other stuff is revealed, and so the story sort of shifts to him doing that investigation. And things kind of come full circle. They work in the original story. And it, there is a little mystery to it, but I do think for the most part, this movie is funny, but it is only funny if you are a fan of Chevy Chase because he's like 100% doing the one-note Chevy Chase character where he just he doesn't take any situation with any level of seriousness. You know, he always has like a quip or he gets himself out of a situation, doesn't really seem phased, even though there's some like really crazy stuff happening to him throughout the movie. It's also one of these movies where he like dresses in different characters, you know, goes undercover. So he dresses like a doctor and of course gets into a situation where he's got to help somebody out and then passes out because he doesn't like the sight of the blood. So there's a lot of those little situational comedy bits as well as uh, it's, you know, it's an 80s movie because there's a fantasy sequence that uh, might not hold up as well in 2023, fantasizing about playing with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and they give him like, they give Chevy Chase like this gigantic afro. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it clearly 1985. But overall, I really enjoyed Fletch. I've only read bad things about Fletch Lives. I don't think I've ever actually seen it. But I thought I might give it a go now that I'm invested in the uh, Fletch universe. And I also, uh, there's like that Fletch Confess that uh, has John Hamm. They like remade Fletch. And John Hamm plays a Fletch character. And I've actually heard really good things about it, but I haven't seen it. So I'm going to try to stream that some point in the near future. I forgot that existed, but I, yeah, I remember seeing ads for it too. I can get sucked into Fletch. I recognize its uh, pitfalls, um, but it, it's still kind of... I think the 80s exists in that time of you just kind of have to accept what it was and the things that we learned from and got better on a, you know... Yeah. Well, one thing, first off, like right away when you're watching Fletch, it has like a very confident direction to it by Michael Ritchie. So, and he's done, uh, you know a variety of movies like did the original bad news bears did the candidate with robert redford um did the golden child with eddie murphy so he's a very 
skilled and confident director. So when you're watching Fletch, it looks it doesn't kind of look like a run of the mill comedy of the '80s. There feels like there's a little bit of sense of style to it and framing and uh, composition, and also a really great uh, Harold Faltmeyer score. Um, the Fletch theme uh, I've been jamming on Spotify lately, and it's really great. It's got that real. 80s synth driven score you know and i love too when there's that regular music kind of or like a song or something and it cuts to like the character's theme yeah. song very much you know harold faltmeyer did the top gun maverick theme and he did a axel foley's theme for beverly hills cop and there's some real super similarities between that and the fletch theme yes totally both of them i like individually and if you were to play them next to each other and be like which one is which i could tell them apart for sure but they're uh I, I like the, the Fletch one maybe a little bit more just because it feels, uh, I don't know what it's called, but when like maybe we bring it like down an octave or something, yeah. it gets like a little like mystery. Mm, like builds up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for that one. Well, that's our uh, Chevy Chase double feature pick of the week. Seems like old times and Fletch. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. That was fun. Murray and Chevy Chase have made countless public appearances together. They've gone golfing together, have many mutual friends over the last 40 years of their careers. So why is it that every time their names are brought up together, people reference an infamous altercation? Let's finally get to the full truth of it. Picture it. February 18th, 1978, season three of Saturday Night Live, Lauren Michaels, creator of SNL, had asked Chevy Chase to return to host after his 76th departure from the show. His former cast members were all still on the show, only now, Billy was the new man on the SNL campus. February was a big ratings month, so a great time to bring back a very popular not-for-prime-time player. Chevy had just wrapped Foul Play, co-starring Goldie Hawn, which was his first big-screen endeavor. And Chevy was wary of coming back because he'd heard rumors that the former cast members were salty about his departure. For the OGs, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, Garrett Morris, Jane Curtin, and Lorraine Newman, many of them felt he had abandoned this baby they'd brilliantly created together. In case it needs to be said, think about how well-known SNL is these days, whether you like the current cast or not. This was the cast that put SNL on the American pop culture map for humor and satirization. Chevy came back with the subconscious understanding that probably Lauren and Belushi had talked a little bit of smack on him for leaving. And Belushi was the second heavyweight. Chevy was number one, and he knew the water had been tainted even before he came back to the SNL pool. By this time, Billy had established himself on the show, and he and Chevy had known each other from their years in the National Lampoon's radio hour years prior. For more backstory, the Lampoon crew was brought together by Belushi, which not only included Billy and Chevy, but also Gilda, Harold Ramis, Christopher Gass, Brian Doyle, Murray, like those jokers. And even then, it was said that Chevy and Billy creatively clash sometimes, but nothing too big from what I've been able to surmise from stories. I know I'm setting the stage a bit here, and this is a long Murray moment, but this is our fifth anniversary, and it feels like 
it's moments like these. I hope people have been paying attention to these Murray moments because you can connect so many talented people to all of these stories involving Bill. Okay, back to 78. Chevy wasn't helping to quell the underlying insecurities of the cast. He knew audiences wanted to see him do two things. They wanted to see him do his signature pratfalls and two, do Weekend Update, a segment which was now anchored by Jane Curtin. And Chevy made a case to Lauren that he should do the segment by himself, without Jane, because, quote, I'm just going to upstage her. Everyone's waiting for me, and I'm just going to destroy her, Chase said. Jane, let's face it, you can't be on screen with me at the same time. Evidently, Jane didn't care, one way or another. She was annoyed by the entire thing, the drama surrounding Chevy, and she said, quote, Chevy was expecting something that he wasn't getting from me. And in the end, Chevy didn't get his way. He and Jane kind of did the segment together, Chevy coming in at the latter half, ending with Jane telling Chevy to just go back to Hollywood. The entire segment's joke ended up being about Chevy underhandedly trying to kick Curtin and Dan Aykroyd off the Weekend Update segment. Of course, this wasn't the only incident. Belushi and Aykroyd had been skulking around grumpy and annoyed because everyone was making a big deal about Chevy, having to deal with photographers and questions, you know, like, what's it like to have Chevy back and now that he's a big star? That that sort of thing. And there was a fair amount of dope that was influencing all of the high-tension emotions behind the scene. And not just Chevy. Booze, drugs, they were a thing then and definitely made things worse. In retrospect, Chevy has said at the time he thought he was returning to a family of sorts, but, quote, at the same time, was feeling really full of myself because I had become pretty famous. Chevy had continued to throw his weight around all week of writing and rehearsals. Tension was building. Finding Chevy in the writer's room with Al Franken and Tom Davis, Billy bursts in and confronts Chevy about all of the unbelievably awful stories he's heard about Chevy since his departure. Bill was also known to be protective of the female cast members, and once he'd heard about the egocentric Weekend Update situation, he'd had it with Chevy. If you can believe it, no one had ever actually confronted Chevy about his crap behavior, which left him shocked when Bill came in blazingly hot-headed and got in his face. Chevy just told him to get out. After dress rehearsal, Billy wasn't about to let it go. And via gossip and tabloids, word had gotten around that Chevy was having troubles at home with his wife. Bill took advantage of this public knowledge and went for a quick, shallow jab. Go fuck your wife, Billy said. She needs it. Chevy comes back with a crack about Neil Armstrong landing on Bill's face, and the situation just kept escalating. At the meeting between dress rehearsals and the show, everything was contained, but the air in the room was thick with animosity. But five minutes before airtime, and I don't think I ever knew that before that it was right before the show aired, the tension had finally gotten the best of Chevy, and he burst into Belushi's dressing room looking for Bill, who he indeed found, and he went for it. Let's go, sucker. And he put his fists up in Bill's direction. And you know, you'd think after years of knowing Bill, Chevy might have known better. Bill was never known to be a muscular guy, but he was really tall, like the same height as Chevy, in decent shape with an Irish temper and a kid from a family of nine. He wasn't exactly afraid to get physical if provoked. And he came at Chevy swinging. This is my show now, he yelled at Chevy. With these guys throwing punches, Gilda and Lorraine jumped out of the fray. Bill's brother Brian grabs Chevy's arms. SNL writer Tom Schiller gets pinned behind the dressing room door while Belushi manages to get in between these two men having a testosterone flare-up. And pretty much everyone who witnessed the incident said that most of the punches hit Brian Murray and Belushi. Belushi was one of the culprits who instigated the Chevy shit-talking, and Bill was Belushi's boy. Bill looked up to him and had only defending his friends and fellow cast members in mind. 
Blues Brothers, Animal House, and American Werewolf in London director John Landis also happened to be backstage visiting Ackroyd and got a front row seat to it all. He said he heard a tremendous noise, looked down the hall to see this giant skirmish, people trying to pull apart these two six-foot-plus men, and couldn't believe the obscenities that Chevy was throwing out, while this man who he didn't know, Bill, was yelling things like, Medium talent! at Chevy. I'd never seen Bill Murray before, said Landis. But to come up with an insult like medium talent in the heat of anger, I was impressed. I was like, who is that guy? And as they say, the show must go on. The fight was broken up, but Chevy still had to go out and open the show right then. With Lauren watching on the monitors, it was obvious the fight had thrown off the ex-cast member turned host. Chevy doesn't have it tonight, Lauren said at the time. Lorraine was watching Chevy open the show and said that he just looked shattered. Having watched this episode myself, it is a little off, but in no way would I have thought that Chevy would have just been in a fist fight. Bill was trying to take me down a rung, Chevy said, and I was probably up a rung. I was probably too full of myself. Chevy claims he only thought about this in hindsight because at the time, he thought he was coming back to kind of a family. Bill had another take on the fight. I was the new guy. It would have been too petty for someone else to do it. It's almost like I was goaded into doing it. I think everybody was hoping for it. I did sense that, he said. I think they resented Chevy for leaving. They resented him for taking a big piece of success and leaving, making his own career go. Everybody else was from the improvisational world where you didn't make it about you. You were an ensemble. You were a company. So when he left, it was just a shock. Though tensions continued through the episode, there were no other reported incidences, except for the closing of the show that a few people have commented on. As the cast gathered on the stage to close out every episode as they do, Bill does look a little edgy, and some said he was eyeing Chevy to start this fight all over again. Belushi and Ackroyd can be seen flanking Bill as if to temper the situation and make sure it doesn't happen again. It's a very brief moment that you see, but if you know the context, you can see that both Belushi and Ackroyd are like... Okay, dude, let's make sure we got this in check. This was the truth, as I understand it from books, multiple eyewitness accounts, and the truth is now these dudes don't really have a problem with each other. They're both too old to care anymore. So much has happened. So many of their friends have died. The two have spoken through many outlets about how this fight happened and how they got over it fairly soon after. Only a year and a half later, Chevy and Billy would share one of the greatest improvised scenes in Harold Ramis's Caddyshack. There was apprehension from the creative brains behind the film that old tensions might arise, but Chevy and Billy did not let that happen. Harold Ramis said of the time, quote, To me, it was all hearsay and rumor. They were determined to get along from the beginning. As soon as Billy arrived, it wasn't like they embraced each other, but they were respectful and cooperative. It's also been said that Bill was able to keep himself in line because of his friendships with Caddyshack brains Doug Kenny, Harold, and Brother Brian, who were on set every day. Additionally, even though the, the cocaine was a flowin' on the Caddyshack set, Bill wasn't a user. Chevy's another story. So flying off the handle wasn't as much of a concern. As for their one scene that did make it in the movie, Chevy said Ramis had to eventually stop them because the duo could have gone all night because they got nothing but comedy gold that entire filming session. So the next time you hear this story, any shit-talking, remember to tell the truth about the situation. Sometimes people lose their tempers, but we can hope that... We can let grudges go and get over it fairly quickly. Watching uh, several Chevy Chase movies, he is kind of an intimidating guy. Like, he's always towering over people. Is he, like, 6'5"? He's pretty tall. I mean... He's got three inches on Bill. Yeah. yeah. And, I, I mean, and he's not really, like, an outish... I mean, you know, they kind yeah. of make him look like an average person, but in Fletch, he's like looks like he's in pretty good shape. 
And I mean, he just towers over everybody in every scene. He's like so much bigger than they are. I feel like he would in person be like kind of an intimidating presence. Yes, totally. But, uh, you know, I, I haven't really found anybody to say many good things about Chevy Chase outside of his like comedic talent. I did read, speaking of one of the vacation movies, uh, Chris Columbus was the original director for A Christmas Vacation. And because he met up with Chevy Chase and was immediately like, yeah, I can't work with this guy. He's a total asshole. I think um, Chevy made some strides once he maybe gave up some vices in his life. I think that was probably a really big factor for him. But doesn't mean that he um, wasn't a pompous asshole or maybe still is. You know? Yeah, well, he kind of like his career kind of, you know, in the late 90s, you know, he was doing some pretty rough movies. But then... uh, he kind of had a revival with Community, but mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, I've read he was kind of a tyrant on that set as well. Blew so. up on that, yeah. Yeah. His most recent interviews, when he's asked about things, it does feel like he's being pretty honest. He like, A lot of things that I was reading, he was like, yeah, I was a dickhead, totally. Um, so I think that there's something to be said for, for someone who can look back. Um, but it's it's a different thing to look back on something that happened two years ago right. versus something that happened 45 years ago. Well, thanks so much for that Murray moment. Of course. Well, before we close out our five-year anniversary show, Lindsay, do you have a couple final thoughts for us about National Lampoon's Vacation, the original? Five years. God, I just can't believe it. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still there. You know, there was one one thing that I don't think we mentioned because when I was a kid, I like I wanted to go to Wally World. Like, what is this magical place? I'd only known Six Flags and like Worlds of Fun, um, but what was Wally World? Well, um, for any any uh, nostalgic brains out there like me, um, if you notice in every scene where you see Wally World in the distance and you have the Griswolds, you always see the Griswolds at the bottom of the frame and Wally World's up at the top. Um, and that is because when you see it from a distance, Wally World is a giant matte painting. And that's why we don't have the Griswolds go over onto the second half because the top half painting, bottom half is film. I think that that's pretty cool. It's also when you know that it's obvious looking at it. But Wally World itself, they wanted to get Disneyland in Anaheim, um, but that wasn't going to happen. So they were able to get Six Flags pretty much for the entire interior of Wally World. And then it was a Santa Anita racetrack for the parking lot scene. So put together, I believe that Wally World existed. There's no part of me that didn't think it did. I really love this, the concept of Wally World and that they you yeah. know, came up with a original title and idea than just using like Disneyland or whatever. And I got to say, I'm not a fan of the uh, cultural acceptance of now using Wally World to reference Walmart. It's kind of annoying. Yeah. My mom does that. Yeah. I, I won't ever call Walmart Wally World. <laughs> Wally World to me exists only in the universe of National Lampoon's Vacation. I know when I thought about Six Flags and I'll say to somebody, do you want to go to Six Flags? I'll say, do you want to go to uh, 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 Wally World? You know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Six Flags. Wally World is the yeah. first thing that comes to mind. What about you, Justin? Any final thoughts? I didn't really have very many final thoughts other than um, I was actually, you know, really surprised at how little I get sick of this movie. I mean, it's just, uh, to me, it, it's it's a signifier of summer. It really captures that essence of like a road trip, and which is something I feel like is kind of coming back. You know, the road trip is coming back now because through COVID and everything, we're you know, 
That's true. And, and flying sucks so bad these days. You know, it was, like I said earlier in the podcast, uh, you know, it was a luxury back then. But now you just don't see that. So getting out on the open road seems to be a more convenient and family-oriented way to uh, take a trip. Even though there's a lot of exaggerations in this movie and there's the dog death and stuff, it still, I think, is a really well-crafted road trip movie that also still holds on to some sense of family value of like a family getting together and, and getting through this trip, you know, even though that there's struggles along the way, which, you know, is, is universal to families. The first thing you, you think of when you start even a relationship with somebody is like, well, why don't you take a road trip and yeah. you know how well you get along, you know? <laughs> yeah. and so this movie to me kind of like embodies that concept. For as many inappropriate things that happen in this movie, as far as it being a family film, it still feels like that to me. And it's no wonder that people like you and I, we watched this when we were kids. And so many people I know watched this when they were kids. And that it has continued to be a giant franchise like it is and, and still feels heartwarming in a way. I mean, Christmas Vacation is probably the most heartwarming, but... I'm always rooting for the Griswolds. I'm always thinking that, that they're going to make it out of it. And for Clark being kind of like, I mean, he's too chicken shit to like actually cheat on his wife. But like Clark and Ellen, they're kind of a great couple. And I, I love seeing yeah. them throughout this franchise. Yeah. And I do like that he they make him less scumbaggy in Christmas Vacation. Totally. I think Christmas Vacation is like, you know, there's a little flirtation in the mall, but for for the most part, he's got his family front and center yeah. in his mind. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for listening to our five-year anniversary episode. Please continue to listen. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Lindsay, I think you started us on TikTok. So many places to catch up on what we have coming next. And what do we have coming next? Is this going to start our our uh, serial killer summer? Yes, it is. I think so. We're doing a serial killer summer, and uh, we'll be doing, uh, for two months, we're going to do seven coming up next and f- in July, and then in August, we're going to be doing American Psycho, and then our picks of the week will probably be serial killer type movies. So if you're into uh, serial killers, buckle up. You're probably going to have a good summer with us. Um, If you're not into, (laughs) if you're not fascinated with serial killers, you may not uh, see us till September. But either way, um, I look forward, Lindsay, to recording many more years with you. I love doing this podcast. Me too. And I love you as well. I love you, Justin. Thanks for creating this. Thanks for having me on board. And this is our uh, baby that I'm always so proud of every single day and work on every single day of my life and and have never gotten tired of it. And none of it would be worth it without you listeners. So thank you again so much for tuning in, downloading, uh, sending us emails, sending requests. It really, really helps drive the enthusiasm to uh, work really hard to put out good episodes. And also B, Stan, and Mallory, our dogs who were with us during all of these recording sessions. In case you guys uh, weren't aware of that, if you hadn't yeah. heard them barking in the background or anything. Every now and then you can hear little sounds. Yeah. Yep. Well, until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you.